You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. In early 2020, the CRB Commodity Index was languishing, if that's the right word, just above 100. And when I say just above, it was around about an index level of 112, 113. Now, the CRB Commodity Index is a basket of commodities that range from grains to gold, essentially every commodity that is dug out of the ground and makes money for commodity producers. In June of 2022, this index went from the aforementioned 112 level to above 350, so it tripled in price. At the moment, it's still quite elevated at 305. So the commodity asset class, and we must call it an asset class, is terribly, terribly important, especially if you're a country like South Africa, for example, that relies on commodity income. So I want to talk about commodities. With me now is one of the world's top commodity producers executives. You may know him as the former CFO and CEO of Anglo Gold Ashanti, South Africa's top gold producer. No longer on the exchange, unfortunately, but uh, or no longer operating in South Africa, unfortunately. Uh, his name is Srinivasan Venkatakrishnan. That's what I call him, but lazy people call him Venkat. And I'm going to be lazy for the purposes of this podcast. Long introduction, Venkat. Where are you, first of all, and welcome. Now, thank you, uh, Lindsay. Where am I at the moment? I'm currently in Chennai in India. Came to visit my parents, and uh, that's the benefit I've had for the last two years. COVID stopped uh, travel to see my aging parents. So last year, I took about two and a half months and came and spent time uh, helping my parents. And this year, it's about a month. So I'm here with my parents. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's been a good experience for me. I've uh, actually not had that chance uh, in my executive life, in my full-time executive employment. So at least for the last two years, I've managed to catch up and spend time with my aging parents. And that's been quite satisfying. Very good. But you're still in the commodity producing business in, in some capacity. That is correct, Lindsay. What happened is uh, post my executive roles, and as you know, I've been uh, a CFO of uh, two large uh, mining companies, and I've also been CEO of two large mining companies. Post that, it was a question of what do I do? So the options were you either retire or you retire. And I opted for the (laughs) second. And I said, what is it that's going to give me satisfaction? And I said, probably taking on a kind of a non-exec role mentoring, coaching, helping people, guiding people, etc., where you not only share the benefit of your experiences, but importantly, you deal with uh, a wider spectrum of people, wider spectrum of companies, and you learn in that process. And you know, I've had this quest for learning, and that's never ending. So I'm currently on the board of a few mining or mining-related companies, mining investment companies, and I'm enjoying my time there. Congratulations. Let's talk about commodities now because commodities are in your blood as they are in mine. I love commodities. I understand supply and demand. I understand macroeconomics more than I do the balance sheets of a company. You understand both. Give me a general overview of the commodity sector. Maybe just condense it down to the period that I spoke about, 2020 to 2022, if you would. Yeah. No, I will, uh, Lindsay. In fact, uh, just to pause there for a second. I used to work uh, with uh, a former colleague who unfortunately is not alive anymore called Kelvin Williams. And when I met him first in 2004, you know Kelvin from the days at Anglo Gold. I do indeed. He said one thing to me. He said, I can tell you the commodity price will go up and it will come down. I can't (laughs) tell you when and in which order. And he was so right. I shall tell you, he was so right. 
basically, what you're seeing in the commodity space is a mixed bag. That's the best way to put it. If I were to focus on just that period between 2020 and 2022, we had the impact of COVID. COVID was something which the world was not prepared for nor expecting. So there was a huge slowdown coming on the back of COVID. And prior to that, the index, as you correctly said, was languishing anyway. And COVID gave that blow because everything kind of came to an abrupt stop. But post-COVID, what we started to see was two factors. One, a kind of revenge stocking up because people felt, hey, they have not had enough uh, uh, materials in their warehouse. They need to stock up for business needs. And we started to see uh, uh, green shoots start to emerge. That started to give a boost to some of the commodities. And one of the reasons why you saw the index go right up is because people were actually stocking and perhaps uh, overstocking than their normal requirements because they could just see supply chain uh, interruptions and so on coming through. Then uh, as we started to recover from COVID, uh, as you know, there were a number of instances where there were repeated lockdowns that came in. And lockdowns have got uh, a couple of impacts. One, it stops economic activity, point number one. Point number two, it when it resumes, it's a long lead time before you can get the commodity from A to B. And not to mention that you have to produce that in the first place to deliver it to uh, uh, the end place. And thirdly, at the same time, the government has to keep the economy going, so it's pumping cash. So all of these factors started to give a boost for the commodity prices. And in addition to that, what we started to see is the world announcing infrastructure spending plans because everybody came around to the view that the idea of dishing out free aid is no longer going to be feasible. It's got to be accompanied by some sort of infrastructure spend. And you saw all the developed countries announcing large infrastructure plans, whether it's the US, whether it's Europe, whether it's UK, et cetera. And then came the supply chain interruptions, which actually started to give a flow for the commodity prices. That was what happened in that period in the run-up to kind of early 2002. Now, superimpose that with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. That was something which actually compounded, if I would say, the impact of COVID and extended it even further, Lindsay, because one forgets the extent of strategic minerals that come from those countries and the importance of supply chain in that area. And particularly when it comes to gas supply and essential kind of commodities, uh, whether it's kind of nickel, et cetera, which comes from Russia. So we saw that come through uh, at the same time. And, and before you go on, just this. before you go on, something has suddenly occurred to me, and that is the way that human beings change their behavior. Because of lockdowns and because of COVID, people's personal habits changed. Now, maybe people's habits when it comes to the macroeconomic picture, when it comes to the bigger commodity picture, people always... Uh, maybe will, sorry, change their habits. If you look just a couple of days ago, the world's biggest wind farm in the North Sea, which is four times the, the size of the city of Manchester, was switched on and it can heat and energize, I think 1.1 or 1.2 million homes. So Russia can say as much as it likes about being beholden to the, the West or rather the West beholden to it about its gas supplies. But on the other hand, people change and they adapt. So it's a very it's a very fluid situation, Venkat. I've put it rather clumsily, that's, but you know what I mean. That's absolutely right. It's a highly fluid situation. And where you're correct is the perceived threat or the real threat for gas supply into kind of Europe 
the world will get over it. It'll get over it. There may be short-term interruptions, but you are correct. Human beings are very good at adapting, and we have seen that with COVID. There would be a short to medium-term impact, but then people's behavioral needs change. Government's approach, which says earlier on, I'd actually import based on where the cheapest uh, source of supply uh, comes from, will change and people will want to be self-reliant. And you're correct about the wind farm and other forms of uh, green energy that will come in. But just whilst we are talking wind farm here, what people forget is that, you know, typically when you're switching from, say, fossil fuel to gas-fired turbine, and I'm picking a number here, if you require 200 megawatts of gas-fired turbine to operate, you need about 600 tons of iron ore and seven times that amount in concrete and several tons of other minerals to basically deliver that gas-fired turbine. And if you were to say, I need wind farm and wind turbines, you can add a few zeros to it. So what I'm saying is, whilst the behavioral needs will change and we'll overcome, you know, everything will pass. As they say, this shall also pass. But fundamental to this is going to be supply of minerals from the ground, which are going to be needed for even this transition. So going back to this point, we've had the COVID impact. We've had the Russian invasion impact in here. We are starting to see muted short-term growth outlook, but inflation getting to very high levels. And supply of minerals is not going to ease in the short term. And interest rates are also starting to rise because that's the only tool central banks have to control inflation. And at the same time, what we are seeing is a big push towards green energy, which is effectively battery minerals and battery storage minerals. So unlike 2008 or the prior periods, Lindsay, yes. where there was normally one factor which caused an economic rift, causing something, you know, it was the global financial crisis in 2008. It was the Great Depression in 1994. Here you're seeing multiple factors come in together. It was COVID first. Secondly, supply chain restrictions, which are still continuing, by the way. Then the Russian invasion. We're seeing runaway inflation here. We're seeing high interest rates, muted growth. But the government knows that it has to continue to spend on infrastructure to get the economy out of trouble. So all of these factors, plus the commitment for 2030 or 2050 energy transition, provides that kind of landscape here for the minerals and mining sector to grow. So if I were to look at it, you've got multiple factors playing here. And during the intervening period, you can ask, what does it mean? In the intervening period, you're going to have a lot of high volatility and uncertainty. You've seen coal prices, fuel prices go up, then pull back down. Battery minerals went up, it started to pull back again. But normality starts to resume. Inflation will ease, post the short to medium term. And longer term, your supply shortages, the availability or lack of availability of minerals will provide a good floor and a leap, leapfrogging ground for the general metals and mineral space. So prepare for volatility, prepare for uncertainty. As they say, brace for impact in certain minerals, but longer term, remain positive because you can't achieve what you want to achieve 
without minerals being provided from the ground. Exactly. So in the, in the long term, it's green energy. But in the short term, it's actually quite the opposite because you have to dig the stuff out and therefore ruin the environment. And that's a, a very broad term, ruin the environment. But on the other hand, it, it's quite true. In the long term, uh, for future generations of um, uh, Venkatakrishnans, it's going to be fine. But uh, in the short term, it's not good for you and I. Yeah. In the short term, what we are seeing, uh, Lindsay, is a couple of things. One, uh, uh, you're absolutely right. It will take time for that transition to happen. And it will take time for these minerals to, A, located in certain instances, not just dug from the ground. They have to be located first because to meet the 2050 demand, you've got to get enough supply coming. And some of these haven't even been explored. So you've got to first locate some of these minerals, then convert them to a point where it can be mined out and then processing. And here again, behavioral habits will change. Governments would want to want, have the processing capacity in their frontier rather than uh, in another continent because they don't want to be reliant on another continent to provide the value enriching service. So what you're seeing here currently is fossil fuels, which were actually on a downward trend, given the push for decarbonization and push for ESG, and correctly so, when there was a fear of disruption of fuel supplies, you saw them shoot up, whether it's coal, whether it's uh, 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 fuel, et cetera, they started to rally up. But what you will see over time is that those will pull back and will make way for green energy. What we can't assume here, that the green energy transition is going to happen slowly. I can tell you now yes. that people are underestimating how much the take up for battery EV vehicles are at present. And I can tell you, I was trying to get an entirely electric vehicle and I was told the waiting time is about a year plus. Where, don't Where which, which country, which, which geography were uh, you in, in? In, for example, Ireland, you just have to wait for about a period before you can actually get it. The same applies to some of the other countries. And as compared to even uh, the best estimates which were provided, uh, the take up on EVs are, are much higher than the 12% annual cumulative growth that people expected on the adoption of EV vehicles. So the change is coming, the change is going to be substantial, and the speed of change is going to be high. And unfortunately, there isn't enough supply going around to meet that demand. And that's really what is going to be the next wave, which is actually going to embrace the metals and mineral space. Well, very good luck in, in Dublin or wherever you are in Ireland. Uh, at the moment, uh, Venkat, with plugging your one year later electric vehicle, because that's that's to, to me the real problem. I mean, I don't drive. I don't own a motor car. I don't drive. I do drive, but uh, I don't own a motor car. But if I did, I'd have to say to myself, where am I going to plug this thing in? The Netherlands is very progressed when it comes to that, progressive when it comes to that. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, it's a difficult question. Anyway, I don't... Uh, and, and actually, uh, Lindsay, it's not just plugging. There are a couple of things here. Yes. It's the, the actual cost of the vehicle, mm. because the battery that goes in is quite sizable and it has all sorts of battery minerals that goes in. Secondly, the ability to recharge for long periods of time at remote locations. You, it's fine. You get it in the, in the city centers. What about remote when you're going from A to B? The third aspect is the energy generated has to be stored and that battery storage uh, minerals are unique. So all of these factors are actually going to play to basically get it. But will the supply pick up over time? Absolutely. But we are not talking a couple of years. It's going to be probably over the next decade or so. But that's going to require 
people to put in a fair amount of manufacturing capacity and production capacity. Yeah, just summarising, you've got to wait a year for the EV vehicle, uh, the electric vehicle. Uh, and if you and your wife and family want to go off to the, the, the beautiful Emerald Isle countryside, you're going to get to a village and you'll find yourself low on battery and you won't be able to get back to, to Dublin where you can plug in. But anyway, that's another story. I don't want you to be a tipster. I'd love you to be a tipster, actually. I'm talking nonsense. I'd love you to tip things, but that's not your job. Uh, how will each category of minerals react to what you have just spoken about? Which are the sectors that are going to be hot and which are not going to be hot? Okay. Uh, if I can break the broad sector, because you can go into multiple subsectors, and then we'll be chasing our own tails. Mm. If I were to look at it in four broad categories here, let's start with fossil fuels. Fossil fuels, longer term, on a downward trend for exactly the reasons we discussed, decarbonization, the negative impacts of ESG, etc. So longer term, you will see fossil fuels having taking a toll and it will be actually on a downward trend. But in the short term, given the current energy crisis, the fear of disruption that we are seeing, and let's also be real, some developing economies do not have the ability to switch to green energy overnight. South Africa is one classic example of it. So they will actually need fossil fuels for a period before they can actually effect that switch. So in the short term, fossil fuels will get the tailwind, but in the medium to longer term, I would not be positive about the fossil fuel sector. That's just my personal view, right? Uh, so in other words, the, you the, 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 just let me just give you an example there from my simplistic point of view. The oil price at one stage spiked very, very briefly to $139 a barrel around about four or five months ago. It's now back at around about $93, $94 a barrel as we pre-record this. My personal opinion is it goes down as the world goes into a, a, a slowdown, not a recession, but a slowdown could come down to $70, $80 a barrel. Do you think it'll go further than that in the future? Listen, it's gone down to as low and tested close to 30 a barrel mm. at one point in the same period you mentioned. If there is an economic slowdown and conversion to green energy happens faster than people think, then uh, I think it would be incorrect for us to assume that 70 is the floor. So it can actually go even lower. That's just my personal view. Okay. And that I'm talking in the longer term, right? That's the aspect in terms of fossil fuels. Now you then turn to gold and precious metals. Ah, your, 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 your expertise, that's, that's the, here we go. That's my bread and butter, as you know, from my days <laughs> yes. in gold mining. What you would normally see in, in gold prices, because I have always said gold is a multifaceted commodity. It's like a Rubik's Cube. It trades as a commodity. It trades as an investment. It trades as a safe haven asset. It trades as a hedge against inflation. It trades as a jewelry, and it also trades as a currency. So typically, during high interest rates environment, you would expect a big pullback in gold. And you remember at one stage during the global financial crisis, we saw gold come right off for a variety of reasons. So with U.S. increasing interest rates and giving the direction that it's going to increase rates come what may, gold should have actually tested far greater lows. And it hasn't. Why? Because there is still fear about inflation. And gold tends to do very well during high inflationary periods. But it's not. Because that has actually been proved as a long-term hedge for inflation. But uh, so Venkat, before you go on, it's completely divorced itself from that particular relationship, which is historically correct. But at the moment, I'm, I looked at my screen this morning, and I saw gold at $16.99 an ounce. And that is in a 
the highest inflation environment that we've seen for multi-decades. So gold is no longer relevant when it comes to inflation, maybe because of the strength of the US dollar. No, that's currently the perceived strength of the US dollar. Because of the interest rates, your carry trade tends to have far greater benefit. You are starting to see some pullback on gold, but you will know well if there had been such frequent increases in US interest rates, close to you know 7,500 basis points coming through, gold would have actually traced to much, much lower levels, and it hasn't. And the reason is people are watching inflation. There is a feeling here that inflation might be short-lived. And I would say, think again, because inflation is here to stay. Yes. It is going to be a fact of life for at least the next two to three years during the slowdown period. And this is traditionally a weak quarter for gold. But wait, when inflation starts to come through and when you start to go into the festive season and watch how this gold price performs. I'm bullish on gold price, largely because we have seen the, the negative impact come through on gold. In other words, U.S. interest rates. Markets has now baked in higher interest rates. They have not baked in high long-term inflation. When that starts to happen, gold price will start to rally. That's my, my view, personally, and I'm not shy saying it. It's not just gold, it will be silver as well. So the precious metals basket will rally to higher levels because that is the tried and tested inflationary hedge, and okay. that's not going to go away. Okay, I have to. I can't resist doing this. You don't have to answer these questions if you don't want to. Uh, firstly, uh, my observation is that you're a true gold miner. Okay, you sat at a desk, but you, you were surrounded by diggers at Anglo Gold Ashanti. The other thing I have to say is that your mother was always a very, very good predictor of, of the gold price. And if you don't want to talk about that, then that's absolutely fine. We'll do it on another occasion or, or privately. But what does she think at the moment about the gold price before we go on to recession factors? Uh, listen, the reality is uh, I have been surrounded by diggers, but diggers who knew what they were doing. That's the first aspect. And secondly, with regard to my mother, she's frail right now. She's always been positive about gold. And that is one thing. Even today, she was asking me, I need to gift uh, some of my gold jewelry to your future daughter-in-law. So, uh, <laughs> you know, don't forget before you leave, I need to give that to you, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, obviously, there's no urgency on that one. But it just gives you the sentiment that she's very positive on gold. So that's the second basket of commodities, right? Okay. The third basket for me, in response to your question on how each of them will react, is basically based in industrial minerals. And that would be a direct correlation to the infrastructure spend and on mining projects. If there is a general slowdown in growth, slowdown in projects, you will start to see a negative impact. But if that infrastructure spend and projects proceed, then you will start to see a good rally come through in that regard. And the last one, needless to say, the one I'm most bullish about is around green energy and battery minerals. Very similar to gold having a good rally. I think decarbonization is here to stay. People are underestimating the time it's going to take to achieve decarbonization goals. The quantum of minerals that are going to be needed to achieve the decarbonization goals, the time supply chain will supply will need to catch up with the demand. And lastly, the cost. So green energy and battery minerals, I would say, would be the long term beneficiary of all of what we are seeing, whether it's co copper, whether it's cobalt. Nickel, lithium, rare earths, high-grade silica, chromium, zinc, aluminium, very important, graphite, manganese, vanadium, name it. They will be good beneficiaries in the longer term because decarbonization isn't going to go away. So that's how I see 
the four baskets of commodities reacting. Very good. Now, let me ask you one question, which is off script. This is, you talk about green energy. Boris Johnson, he's only got a few more days in, in power. The new UK Prime Minister will be announced on September the 5th. He's been banging on about nuclear now, and he's talking about si the Sizewell uh, nuclear plant in East Anglia on the east coast of, of England, and a lot of other European countries having looked at what uh, Russia is doing by weaponizing gas supplies. Is nuclear a green energy suddenly because of advances in technology? And what does that mean? Yeah, I wouldn't put green nuclear straight in as green energy, given the potential environmental impacts, as you've seen, in, in case something goes wrong. Japan is a classic example yeah. where we have had some instances. But having said that, is it an alternative to fossil fuels and ranking somewhere in between? Definitely, yes. And if you were to look at it, India gets its source of uh, a large chunk of its energy source comes from nuclear. And if it's actually uh, managed properly, uh, produced securely, to ensure that there is no environmental damage, uh, uh, then it can actually be a very good source of uh, energy, uh, stable energy, uh, certainly for any country. However, it all depends on your ability, A, to respect the environment, to manage the process, and not to use nuclear for any other source. Because if you were to get that wrong and there's an impact in a nuclear plant, that devastation is going to be a extensive and longer term which you can't say about some of the other green energy minerals. Indeed, you're in Chennai in the south of India at the moment. Um, where do you get your energy from at your current residence? Right, we currently get it from a combination of fossil fuels, because coal is a big contributor in India, as you know. Yeah. Hydro is a second source. And uh, basically, there are parts of uh, India which benefit from solar as well. It comes from these three sources, largely. Okay, let's move on now to the prospect of recession. And again, I'm going to preempt you because my mind's racing after all the things you've said to me. Are commodities a predictor of a recession or an expansion? For example, if you see commodity prices coming off, uh, as I said, the CRB index coming from uh, 350 down to 300, let's call it, let's uh, broaden it. Does that mean that the world is going into recession? And when it goes from 112 to 350, does that mean there's an expansion? Tell me about uh, commodities prices as a predictive instrument. Lindsay, very difficult to say that they are a predictive instrument because typically it tends to be a lagging indicator. If there is growth prospects, then ah. people want commodities to take in. However, typically preceding actual projects and growth, there's something called the order book that comes in. And that order book tends to a proceed before physical cash goes out in terms of actually infrastructure spend. That's what drives commodity production. So if for some reason you're actually building a particular mine, you've got to order the various mills, you've got to order various items of equipment, trucks, etc. That triggers the demand for, for commodities. And it's the directional trend of an economy or for that matter, a sector, which is what the mining companies tend to follow. So here... I would say, are we looking at a recession around the corner? My personal view, we're already seeing signs of slowdown in number of economies. So if I'm a betting man at the moment, which I'm not, I would still say mm -hmm. that there is a more likelihood than not of a general slowdown and recession. And we have actually seen that in some of the economies already happening here. Some people may be in denial, saying that, listen, this too will pass, people are overreacting, because you're seeing some, in some economies, equity prices doing extremely well. And therefore, people are saying, you know, this might be crying wolf. I don't buy that. Secondly, 
what we are going to see with this recession is it's going to be accompanied, in my view, with initial periods of high inflation. Typically with recession, you will start to see inflation at its low level here. We're going to see high inflation. It's going to remind us of the periods of 1970s when I was still a school-going kid when we had stagflation. And this is something the world is not geared to deal with a stagflationary environment. And we can ask, what is the factor which is driving inflation? Why is this coming all of a sudden? A couple of factors. There's this pent-up demand post-COVID. And you can see it at airports. There's this revenge tourism that is coming in now. People have not gone out for two years. Boom, then we need to go on holiday. We need to travel. That drives airline prices. Airlines are not able to cope. So they can put up the prices and people will buy. And supply increases in, in mining tend to take a lot more time. And we are seeing continued disruption to supply chain. But the biggest driver of inflation here tends to be energy and logistics, right? My personal view in terms of a recession, because I can preempt your question, saying, what does it mean to the mining sector? My view is mining sector has historically performed well during periods of growth-led inflation. But when growth is muted and you've got inflation, it will take time for the mining sector to kind of catch up until growth starts to gather momentum. So you will see a period of slowdown potentially, but then a rally come through soon thereafter that. Are you seeing um, mining companies? You've, as I said in my introduction, you're one of the world's uh, most accomplished commodity resources executives. Are you seeing exploration projects being put on the table now, you know, between, you know, between the lines? So you, obviously, you don't have to say anything, but are you seeing evidence of that because of the, the prices and because of the potential lack of supply in the future when the world comes out of this uh, nascent recession? Yeah, definitely we are starting to see a far more focus on uh, effectively growth in your own backyard by seeing what exploration can we actually bring to the party, what uh, uh, organic projects can we actually put in uh, uh, to basically deliver the project pipeline, etc. Not to the exclusion of inorganic, because inorganic does have a place to pay, but certainly a focus that there is going to be an increase in supply needed, and therefore the mineral sector has to provide for it, is coming through. But if you were to ask me, is the exploration spend high enough to deliver that supply lift that we are looking for? The answer is no. The exploration spend is not at that high level, and it's typical. You know, dear, people tend to hold back until it's too late, and then at that stage you start to invest, and then by that time the cycle changes. So with the benefit of hindsight, the sector should have invested a little bit more into exploration. We are going to see that pinch on the supply uh, uh, coming to the uh, market to catch up with demand. In certain sectors, certain subsectors, whether it's battery minerals, et cetera, for example, supply is going to take some time. But having said that, uh, is it really cut to the bone? No, but it could have been higher. But we are starting to see a big push for exploration to replace reserves, to bring new projects onto the table, but with a far greater capital discipline. Okay, just to summarize now, you say some of the beneficiaries from the energy transition, and then you list them from A to K. And I'll give them to you now. Yeah. Copper, cobalt, nickel, lithium, rare earths, uh, stroke, uh, high-grade silica, chromium, zinc, aluminium, graphite, manganese, and vanadium. Now, most of those, I mean, apart from nickel and copper and zinc and aluminium, most of those are relatively thinly traded. Is there a, an asset class out there? Is there a, an ETF that allows you to 
uh, take advantage of what you see as the commodities future? Venkat? No, increasingly, it's a good question you ask. In terms of these new commodities coming out, where they are thinly traded, the real entry point for people to get the upside, uh, Lindsay, is not in the listed space or in a traded space. You can always participate in an ETF. But reality, what I'm seeing is that the private equity space is far more active in these areas mm. because typically these are effectively companies that are uh, owned in private and they are looking to kind of prove up their reserves, explore, grow, and then get to a value enhancing stage. They need capital and that tends to attract private capital coming in, which is looking for a trigger event or an exit event to create value. And we are starting to see that there. The second area we are starting to see is that uh, we may not be aware, but 75% of some of the processing capacity sits in the Far East here in some of these minerals. So what we are also seeing is a big, big push for effectively creating the processing capacity and the production capacity actually onshore or adjacent to the shores. For example, in UK, you would have seen that there, is, there are plans to create battery gigafactories. Europe is also talking about that. So we are starting to see that so that people now want to capture the entire value chain, which is from the mineral through to the processing to the end consumer. That's really the focus which we are seeing here. So the way to get upside on this is more likely to go into specific targeted investments, which tend to be unlisted and then ride a period until you get the payback rather than actually trying to go into other forms of investments like an ETF, et cetera. That would be my suggestion. But you are correct. These are new commodities, thinly traded. The market may change over time for it to get enough liquidity and trading for which you need supply. Yes, you do. And supply only comes from exploration. And also the, the d deposits. I mean, I don't know where these deposits are for some of the, these minerals and uh, metals that you speak of so highly. It's, a, it's an interesting situation. Venka, if there is going to be a recession, Will it represent the similarities of what happened in, uh, well, actually it started in 2005, 2006 with the subprime crisis, but then really manifested itself in a horrible way in markets in 2008, 2009. Is there any chance that that can be replicated? Uh, Lindsay, my personal view, 2008 and what we are going to see now are going to be very different. 2008 was predicated by one assumption, one assumption that house prices can only go up, can never come down. Hmm. And that created a huge debt bubble, which caused the entire uh, uh, global financial crisis. But the world has moved on now. It's become wiser. A couple of data points. Companies' balance sheets, at least for now, are in much better shape with less leverage, generally speaking. Then mining companies in particular, uh, since we are talking uh, the mineral space, have demonstrated very good capital discipline. Over time, if you look at how they've returned money to shareholders, how they've paid down debt, what share buybacks they've done, they've demonstrated good capital discipline, aspect two. Thirdly, what was happening as far as the 2008 crisis was the banks were poorly capitalized and couldn't cope with the shock. Whereas now with various regulatory changes, we're seeing improved solvency and liquidity requirements putting uh, effectively banks to maintain discipline here. Very importantly, central banks have already started deploying the measures. It wasn't as in 2008 saying, after the event, we say, what do we do? They've already started seeing trends of inflation and they are going to arrest it by increasing interest rates. So my personal view, this is going to be different to 2008. There's likely to be a recession. 
but I don't think it'll be as deep or as long as we saw in 2008. So it's not going to be as severe or prolonged. You'll see the pain for probably two, two years plus, then hopefully normalcy will, will return. What I am more worried about in, in this environment is because the central banks only have one tool right now, which is high interest rates. As they ratchet up interest rates, most of the developing economies have got U.S. dollar debt. That U.S. dollar debt is going to become quite expensive and they're going to have to service that. And guess where the flows are coming to service those debt is going to come from mineral revenue in a number of places. So whether that would create a flurry of taxes, charges, etc., different question. But I'm, I'm sure there's still time to go. And there are, uh, it would probably be supported with better commodity prices. So the government also benefits in that regard. So that's my two cents take on it. Venkat, very final question. Uh, you're in India at the moment, but uh, you have some roots in, in South Africa. What do you think of the South African mining industry at the moment when it comes to uh, the price of commodities and also legislation and regulatory, um, I suppose I should say, niceties? What do you think about South Africa? Listen, you're, you know I'm an ardent supporter of South Africa. Uh, I have always been and will continue to be. South Africa does go through challenging times, uh, but it will rise above those challenges. Currently, it has been impacted by a number of factors, which you've seen in the public domain, but the continent is still rich. when it, The country is still rich when it comes to minerals. Some of the minerals we are talking about here are available in abundance in South Africa. Hmm. Yes, the environment is tough, no doubt about it, but uh, South African mining is not for the faint-hearted. But I can demonstrate <laughs> improvements that South Africa has done when it comes to ESG aspects, when it comes to safety, et cetera, over the years. But is it an easy environment? I would say probably not. But certainly uh, the much worried fears in terms of uh, resource nationalization, et cetera, haven't materialized, if you think about it. And the rule of law still prevails. And I think that's quite an important positive when it comes to South Africa. So I'm quite positive when it comes to SA. I have to say, Venkat, that you were uh, instrumental in the maturation of the South African mining industry in your work at Anglo Gold Ashanti and also your interactions with government. So congratulations. And thank you very much for a fascinating insight into the world of the commodities. And uh, I just wonder in six months time whether you'll be saying something different, but I'd love to reenact with you in six months or whenever you choose. Srinivasan Venkatakrishnan, ex-CEO and CFO of Anglo Gold Ashanti, thank you very much. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position or opinion of any other agency, organisation, employer or company associated with strictlybusinesspodcast.com. Assumptions made on the analyses are not reflective of the position of any other entity other than the speaker or the author. And since we are critically thinking human beings, these views are always subject to change, revision and rethinking at any time. Please do not hold us to them in perpetuity.